Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking duty of care international students and drugs it's all coming up i don't think universities should be dealing with clinical cases of say suicidal ideation i don't think that should come into a duty of care um and that's not because i'm saying oh they're not experts leave it to the experts because universities are filled with experts um but i'm saying that because if you look at the student condition well actually if you look at Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to survey the perimeters of HE policy this week are three brilliant guests, as always. In Bath, it's Sue Rigby, Vice-Chancellor at Bath Bar University. Sue, your hire to the week, please. Hi, Mark. A highlight of the week, we've just finished our staff survey and 82% of people who work for Bath Bar University would recommend it to a friend. I'm not sure what they'd recommend it to a friend for, but I'm just <laughs> delighted by that number. And in Cheltenham, it's Andy Yule, Executive Director of Digital and Regulation at the University College of Estate Management. Andy, your highlight of the week, please. My highlight of the week is finally getting some thoughts published around data burden. It's perhaps a bit geeky. They've been gnawing at my brain for ages, and I'm really pleased to get them out there and start to get some response, which has been fantastic. Yes, you read about that on wonky.com. And in sunny Brighton, it's Sunday Blake, Wonky's associate editor. Uh, Sunday, your heart of the week, please. Uh, this is a, a preemptive one, but uh, tonight uh, we are starting our first in a series of focus groups on curriculum transformation with. Uh, deans um and i'm really excited about that because i love running focus groups because there's so much like expertise and insight in our students partners academics professional service staff um and i always come away just filled with uh, new ideas um so really looking forward to that so we start the week with a petition and a big conversation about university's duty of care andy walk us through it please uh so there has been a petition uh to Parliament, uh, 128,000 signatures uh, calling on the government to legislate for a statutory legal duty of care uh, for universities towards students. It's been discussed by the Parliament, in in Parliament, by the Petitions Committee, uh, and there was an evidence session on Tuesday uh, where we heard from the petition creators, student and university uh, representatives. Um, So, I mean, obviously, this is such a difficult issue, and there's so much emotion and and difficult issues tied up with it. Uh, Relatives of students who had died by suicide outlined how universities had not communicated with families and really sort of raised this issue that there was just not consistency across the sector. And while there was recognition that the sector does so many good things and there were so many initiatives and, and, and good practice in place out there, um, there is a feeling that, you know, students continue uh, to fall through through the gaps on some of these things. Um, UUK uh, and and Amoshi um, argued that, you know, unlike schools, universities 
really only have a limited impact on on students' wider lives. It's it's a far more, uh, I, I guess, complicated relationship uh, than it is with 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 something like a like a school. And there is a huge risk um, that further uh, sort of regulation and, and and legislation in this area um, is is actually going to be a, a, a real disincentive for for, for staff uh, to 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 come into the sector and 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 engage with these issues. So um, look, you know, a, a tremendous difficult subject so many angles on this um but uh, you know su- such an interesting debate to start the show with so uh, i want to start with you Sue. i mean the the this is it obviously is extremely complicated and quite difficult in on, on many fronts it seems to me that this fundamental question about universities duty of care towards students is becoming kind of one of the totemic issues of our time in that it's not settled at all and also um uh, a, a lot, you know, a lot up, a lot seems up for discussion, and, and a big sort of mismatch, I think, between public understanding and um, and how the sector thinks about it. Yes, I think it's one of the most difficult topics that I've come across in five years as being a, a vice chancellor. Um, I was actually astonished when a judge ruled that we didn't have a duty of care towards students because I think we do. The Department of Education thinks that we do. Um, changing something that's that's implied by health and safety legislation into something statutory might be a useful way to go. But what struck me, I mean, full credit to, to the folks who raised this petition. I mean, listening to the petition committee hearing was one of the hardest listens I've 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 done for the last few years. And the emotion and the and the sort of valid anger in the room was was palpable. But what was also very clear was that every petitioner had a very different view of what an implemented statutory legal duty of care would would achieve. And and I think it's time to stand back now. I think universities have to stop being defensive about this. But I also think that we have to look very clearly at what, what we can be expected to do and what goes outside, what we would extend to our employees uh, that we would extend to people who visit campus for other reasons. And I think the other piece of critical information is is the ONS information about the rate of deaths by suicide, which are something like 3.9 deaths per 100,000 students, 12.5 deaths per 100,000 general population. So arguably, universities are already doing an awful lot that is having an effect. But equally, every time there is a failure, those are lives destroyed, and that's an unbearable conundrum to live with. Mm. Um, I was going to come on to that that legal case later, but, but since you mentioned it, I think I mean if, if Jim's written a fair amount of this on on the side, there is an appeal against it, and a sense that the sector is waiting for the outcomes of an appeal to um, to kind of issue its own guidance about what to do in these sorts of cases. And it is a complicated one, and we'll put links in the show notes as well because I don't. We don't have time to kind of go through all the ins and outs right now, but I guess uh, my, my question, just on that on that case, sir, is is or, or the, the the fallout from it is, if what you know if what you're saying is is right, then um, you know is there a, is there a way I guess for the sector to be less defensive um, and um, to say well you know it's it isn't it isn't the question of what happens in an individual case and the precedent from it, but you know perhaps there's something proactive to be done. Steve West talked about a, a care excellence framework, which I don't know if it's a serious suggestion, but it's an interesting one and obviously raises some interesting interesting questions, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. I mean, we do have a regulator. Um, 
I'll just leave a moment of pause there for for listeners to make of it what they wish. Um, And it could well be that it is through that regulation. But we also have that wider duty of care that society imposes on us. And I suspect that that's the place to, to visit. I think universities are defensive because we can't comment on individual cases. But understandably, parents and and relatives who've been affected by this are very invested in in looking to blame universities for what's gone on. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that there isn't, in every case, an element of blame. But the the inequality of that in terms of the emotional response and, and the duty of silence on one party tends to lead to an outcome of defensiveness. And I suspect that the solution is to in a sense, drain the emotion away from this and look from a legal context at what it's reasonable for a university to do. And that might well be different for a mature student living at home compared to a student living in halls of residence that are owned by a university on its own campus. There may have to be a variety of of solutions or variety of different levels of care being implemented. Uh, We also have to allow for students who are estranged from their parents or where extended contact with parents if a student becomes upset might actually lead to adverse consequences. But again, as I say that, I can feel the defensiveness in in what I'm saying. And I think we have to just take all of that apart now and say, from bottom up, from a sort of foundation of an intention of care, what should universities do? And how do we best impose that requirement on them? I suspect we'd find that most universities already do it. But I think that that's something that we should subject to objective testing rather than just kind of hoping for the best. And then I think you lay on top of that enhancements that come from, for example, and I would say this, wouldn't I, the Student Minds University Mental Health Charter and so on, where you can go above baseline. But I think that that general duty of care is a baseline. And I'd hope that most universities exceed it already. Hmm. Um, Sandra, you've been following this closely, obviously, for, for Wonky. The, the is there something to be done to bridge that gap between the the you know the I guess the public perception, the people who signed that petition, the particularly in, in particular the, the 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 kind of the the leaders of that, the bereaved families, and the sector where it does does feel like a kind of gulf has opened up, doesn't it? And what can what can I guess from from our, our side and in terms of the sector side, where you know where can bridges be built while you know while there is still quite a lot pending in terms of the outcome of those legal you know, legal cases, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, this this is actually really interesting and it's it's something I'm going to try and talk about succinctly, but also with clarity because it, it is something that it is, well, like Andy said, it's just really difficult to talk about. Um, in, I thought it was really interesting that Sue said that there are different views, you know, internally, externally to the sector about what should be happen happening and different ideas about, um, you know, what a duty of care would achieve. E- and different ideas even come in from petitioners and witnesses as well. Um, and that really spoke to me because I, I, I don't actually know what the petition wants universities to be doing. Um, because what was really interesting was in the government's response, they said, they specified that providers do actually have a duty of care already. Um, and that can be summed up as, providers owe in a duty of care to not cause harm to their students through the university's own actions which is a line that I've always taken by the way that you know well-being initiatives should 
be there to counteract distress caused by university experience. So, for example, stressful exams, how to manage exam stress and sort of low level intervention like CBT. Um, but I think what like there needs to be a sort of public understanding of what universities can do, but also what they can do that could actually cause further harm because I don't think universities should be dealing with clinical cases of, say, suicidal ideation. I don't think that should come into a duty of care. Um, and that's not because I'm saying, oh, they're not experts, leave it to the experts, because universities are filled with experts. Um, but I'm saying that because if you look at the student condition, well, actually, if you look at mental health conditions, complex ones, suicidality manifests in very complex conditions that can range from two to 10 years to treat. And I think if universities start wading in on this kind of clinical treatment, which is what some of the conversation is suggesting, say a third year engages with that treatment and then graduates within six months, that therapeutic process is disrupted. They lose all their support and they're at the bottom of a very long NHS waiting list as a graduate and a waiting list that they could have been at the top of and engaging with treatment if they had not been sort of, if the, if the responsibility had not been put on the university. And I think that, and remember that as well, graduate suicide rates are at a higher rate than student suicides. Um, and of course, every suicide is tragic, but this is an even more vulnerable time for them to be using support. So I, I kind of feel that rather than focusing on universities, it would be within the petitioners, the public, you know, universities themselves' interest to be looking at how difficult it is to be a transient patient within the NHS. You know, students moving up and down the country, they can't register at two different doctor surgeries. Um, this means the reality is that a student with a severe mental health condition is going to spend like weeks and weeks of, of a vacation period or a term period, depending where they're registered, not supported by their um assigned primary or secondary care team um and the solution to that in my opinion is not to sort of ratify what universities should be doing but looking at where the gaps in primary and secondary nhs care are happening and how students are falling through those gaps just because of the reality of the student transient experience let's let's, let's pick up some of those themes i, I think that um you know, clearly the, there are issues with um, NHS and those kind of general public health policy that has led to some of some of the kind of gaps in the system that that students and graduates to some extent can can fall through for the reasons that Sunday set out. And I, I guess I'm wondering whether this is an area that could be more fruitful for universities to work on in terms of its, you know, the universities already have very significant partnerships across the NHS. Um, and and also significant clout in terms of you know policy making, given that you know, major stakeholders of um, you know a lot of where you know health is health policy is driven from, where you know health services are commissioned from. So I, I wonder, I guess, the question to to Andy is, you know, what what more could the sector be doing when if it, if it points its points its sort of fire that way? Well, I I I, I think I mean there's 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 a rich seam in that, isn't there? And and building on on what Sunday says there is something significant about about partnerships and you know Mark you you, you mentioned sort of the NHS angle and partnerships around that and you know a, a, another angle on partnerships is, is something that we do an awful lot of it at UCM we have a lot of apprentices uh, you know students studying a, a degree as a part of an apprenticeship and you know that is a relationship with with 
the HE provider and the employer. Um, and, you know, there, there is potential uh, for us to be, as, as a sector, I think, far more joined up and coherent in, in, in many ways. I think Sunday's absolutely right. You know, we, we, there, there's a sense in which we need to stop thinking of this as, as an issue about higher education. It, it is a far broader issue across society. It is, um, yeah, particularly that thing about, about transitions, um, as, as, as individuals move from, from one status to, to, to a different status and move geographically, uh, around the country. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think there's something about the framing of this whole thing, uh, this, this, this whole debate about, you know, the role of universities. It, it's actually broader about the role of universities in a, in, in the contribution they can make to the broader debate around this. And, and, you know, we, we have to work together. We have to look outside HE to find the broader solutions to this. I, I think Andy's quite right. And I think, I think Mark, you're sort of and Sunday you're getting to the root of this problem as a society we have to start talking about suicide and we have to start talking much more openly about mental health issues we can't contain that within a university and we have to work in partnership with parents because otherwise there's this implication that once a student enters a university they're entering a bubble where they can expect to be completely safe and then at the end of it they leave the bubble and even if we've achieved complete safety in it, we've not kitted people out to, to be serviced by society more widely, by the NHS or other support networks at exit. But equally, what we're looking at is an NHS that is unable to deal with these students. We had a case recently where we called an ambulance, the student was in great distress, they were taken to A&E, they were identified as needing residential help, none was available, they were returned to the Hall of Residence. The, the best thing that happened was that the NHS told us as a university that that had happened. But while you've got that level of disconnecting care, there are going to be tragedies. And I'm not for a minute saying that that's the only causality, but we are part of a larger system that is letting society down when it comes to mental health and well-being. And that's, um, uh, that has to be a main focus of, of the work to remediate this across society, not just for people who are lucky enough to be university students, I think. I mean, this is slightly tangential, but one, one thing that I did think was important to raise was that there's a lot of focus on institutions declaring the number of annual suicides that occur and that is a suggestion that really concerns me because we have a very large and complex sector and the dynamic um, sorry the demographics of institutions vary so much that if that was to become mandatory it it could favor more sort of like middle class institutions or, or whatever the demographic is if an institution has uh, a demographic which is more vulnerable to successful suicide attempts so the of um the office of national statistics site that um the the petition that the government's response to petition was was getting its stats from it also says that the that the sort of highest age bracket is 45 to 49 and the highest sort of region is the northeast and i just i i completely understand why people think it's important because they think that it would it would show negligence at certain institutions but actually if if an institution has a higher rate of say mature students that are falling into that demographic of 
higher suicide rate, it's going to look as if the institution is at fault when actually that institution is just has a different demographic to say perhaps a Russell Group University in the South, which has you know, more of a, a, a privately educated middle class demographic who, you know, may even have access to private healthcare um, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I really do understand this need for accountability, but we have such a diverse and complex sector. I, I just think that that, I don't think that that would give us an accurate insight to, to what, she, what universities are doing. Hmm. Um, so I'm conscious we've been talking about this for a while because it is really interesting and really complicated um, let's see who's been blogging for us this week Hi I'm Mark Peace this week on Wonky I've been blogging about the sector's relationship with experiential learning in the article I reflect on how concepts like application co-construction and work integration are now core to many of the sector's education strategies I think this is exciting with potential to support new practice that impacts beyond student employability and into authenticity, belonging and agency. But there's also a risk of viewing experiential learning as a quick fix to complex challenges. Drop students in at one end and they emerge at the other having somehow core employable. To counterbalance this urge, I argue that we need to crack open this black box of experiential learning and think carefully about the nature of the transformations we aim to deliver. In doing so, we can find innovative and more scalable ways of configuring these impacts and develop the scaffolds needed to ensure that every student can benefit from them. We're supporting this with a symposium and sector institute to bring together senior leaders and leading practitioners in order to push forward the art of the possible in this exciting area. Okay, so uh, another row about international students is happening in Whitehall Sunday. Talk us through it. Yes. So the Department of Education, Home Office and Treasury are apparently finalising a plan that would stop dependents travelling with master's students on one year courses. Um, and allegedly, uh, Home Secretary Suella Braverman is becoming increasingly frustrated that some of her proposals to reduce total migration to the UK are being opposed by other members of the pan uh, of the cabinet. Sorry, not the panel. <laughs> um And a quick refresh. So these proposals include uh, reducing the time foreign students can stay in the country after their course, known as the graduate route, um, as well as plans to block low quality courses or providers from recruiting international students. And there is a big question mark uh, and ministerial concerns about whether this could lead uh, the government to legal challenges. Um, And meanwhile, uh, this week, we actually got new estimates for the economic benefit that international students bring to the wider UK economy. Um, so it's risen from 31.3 billion in 2018 to 19 to 41.9 billion in 2021-22. And this was in new modelling from London Economics, uh, which takes into account tuition fee income, living expenditure and other income. Um, overall, the net benefit to the economy that the 2021-22 cohort of international students are expected to bring over the course of their studies is estimated at 37.4 billion. Um, and the reason that's slightly lower than 41.9 is because they deduct the total public costs, so like healthcare, housing, and school education for sh- for children um, associated with the international students. The net economic impact per student is said to be 125,000 per EU domiciled student and 96 
thousand per non-EU student, and that difference is ascribed to EU students being more likely to take undergraduate degrees, so they're in the country longer and more likely to spend money. <laughs> so, right. So, from the sector's point of view, Sue, I mean, I guess the the kind of the least worst option is the one that looks like they're they're landing on, which is this crackdown on 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 PGT dependence. But there are these other things on the table, aren't there? Like um, the, the idea that it would block, quote-unquote, low-quality courses and um, providers from recruiting international students, which has been talked about for years but has never made any sense and they've never been able to explain how that would actually how that would actually work. But there is... You know there is a move move afoot, and there's I mean despite the the the, the the benefits that Sunday set out, there is a case to say that you know in, you know the the international students have contributed to a big jump in net migration, and there are concerns about that in you know wider society. I think it's very fair to question why we want international students. Um, I'm old enough to remember when this was all about soft power and we felt that we could educate the world and in doing so we could instill it with British values. But the British values that I see now are that you take a really, really successful industry that's financially beneficial to the UK and you dismember it because there is a statistic that rests at the end of it that looks worse because of this enormously successful industry. Students are net migrants for a very, very limited amount of time. And then they go back to their country of origin, kitted out by our education. The obvious thing to do is remove them from the statistics of permanent migrants. And at that point, the problem goes away. Um, This is is an issue that makes me want to cry because – What you've asked universities to do is become successful businesses. They become successful businesses exporting education globally. And then the government starts to cavil about the fact that that means that international students visit us for a brief period of time. What what do you want us to do is what I want to say in a kind of vile rage to ministers who are thinking about doing this. It makes no sense at all to me. Mm, mm. I guess um, putting the case that, you know, Andy, that... Um, because of the incentives on universities to recruit international students to make up the shortfall in funding from home undergraduate students, some universities have have done so almost too successfully, and now there's not enough housing, not enough services in some cases for all the students that are coming there. And when they've got dependents as well, as well, that compounds the issue. Yes, and 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 of course, you know, the 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 international student recruitment has has been seen uh, for many institutions as as a way out of the immense pressures on funding, um, with with the tuition fees stuck uh, at now something around what was it around six thousand pounds of of value that they were five or six years ago. Um, so of course, yes, there's this 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 great push to recruit uh, in, international students. I think there's there's been some some more uh, data out from the OFS. Um, talking about you know worries about the extent to which the the, the sector is becoming increasingly uh, dependent, increasingly addicted, perhaps uh, to to international student recruitment to, to to just balance the books. And you're right, you know it it causes all all sorts of problems on on the ground with 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 housing and and and, and other elements of, of of provision. So it's it's a real it's a real conundrum. Um, international student recruitment is is obviously not. Um, not equally uh, spread across the sector, uh, so you know any any moves in 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 the policy on on this area is is, is going to hit some institutions far far harder than others. And I guess the other the other thing I I, I do just want to reflect on is this the extent to which and 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 Sue sort of you know 
touched on it. This 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 is just just one strand in a far bigger issue about uh, immigration um, and you know the reasons for that. And there is a a a global issue uh, about you know people being displaced from their homes. Twenty six million uh, refugees, according to the UN, at at the moment and 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 i just i just get the sense that that higher education and this particular thing about international students it's just collateral it's political collateral as a part of a much bigger thing about um you know immigration and and displaced in, individuals because of conflict political instability and and of course the, the climate emergency and, and the extent to which you know some parts of the world are becoming uninhabitable and and increasingly critical shortages of water everywhere so you know this this is this is a tiny bit of a much bigger and much more complex issue but uh, like like Sue, I'm, I'm immensely frustrated uh, by it. I, it's, it's, you know, why these we want we want students to come to the UK. It's a fantastic export. It's a success story. Huge frustration. Uh, and I think so. I think dis- despite all of this, as Andy says, it's a complicated issue. Links to other things. There, this is the rhetoric that we get on. You know, as you know, the the government of the day. Um, people talking about Brave Miller's, you know, potential. Uh, future Tory leader, depending on what happens at the at the next next election, there's a long term question here, isn't there? About about I guess universities' consent that it has from the public and and how many uh, international students you know are, are, can can come here. I guess statistics or no statistics, there's a kind of there is a there is a point at which um, if it's felt you know, regardless of the truth or not, that international students are taking the places of home students, um, then the sector is going to get into quite significant hot water, isn't it, Sue? Because particularly, uh, you know, if this rhetoric continues, one assumes it's also having some impact um, on how people think about these issues. Um, there's a bit of a, a political minefield ahead, isn't there? I think it's very tricky. But given... Given that this government uses poor quality data so often to, uh, you have to say, attack universities. I mean, low quality courses in itself is is one example of that. Um, then, you know, I think with expertise, you know, like Andy's, it's straightforward enough to start looking at how we remove these figures from the general issue and, and sequester them somewhere else. So, if you think of these students as 41.9 billion quids worth of income to the UK rather than 120 odd thousand people who come here briefly. If you separate them from economic migrants or asylum seekers, because these are people who come and pay for the privilege of being here, you're better off allying them to tourists than you are allying them to economic refugees. These are valid people staying briefly in the UK in order to gain an education that they feel they can't gain somewhere else. Do we have to be careful? Yes, of course. Um, We have to make sure that these students are properly looked after. We have to make sure that they have high quality accommodation. We have to make sure that their numbers don't impinge on the local environment around a university to its detriment. And we have to make sure that those are students that can integrate into the wider student population and gain the benefit from doing that and also deliver benefit to home students by doing that. But the rhetoric around that should be the rhetoric of opportunity and not the fear that that people will take again students. It's 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 an old rhetoric that nobody wants students in their in their backyard. Um, 
but but actually no great harm comes from their being here. Um, and I think that the the opportunities for this are to embrace a global market that we've spent years trying to, in a sense, gain at the expense of Australia and, and the US. And having finally achieved that success, largely through the failure of, of the pound to retain its international value, it has to be said, thanks, thanks Tory government, um, having finally got this market, the idea that we shouldn't be allowed to keep it or we're addicted to it is, is just offensive and ridiculous really it's it's one of britain's great success stories and god knows there aren't many of those at the moment um obviously there's been a recent uptake in numbers which um has sort of been pointed out as unexplainable um but you know it was very sort of public that the uk were thinking of banning dependence so you know a sort of a sort of very quick uptake of international students and dependence sort of makes sense that people are fast-tracking their plans for postgraduate study to come before that new rule. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, there's some really kind of... Um, it's almost like conspiracy theories around this where people are saying, um, oh, I don't mind someone bringing, you know, their children, but people don't need to bring uncles and nieces. They don't need to bring them. And I think these comments are sort of made from this UK lens of family dynamics. Like... We don't tend to live in multi-generational households here the same way that some of the major countries we recruit from. And I think narrowing excusability down to spouses and children is is sort of a little naive. Um, Jim's done some really good work actually on the site where he's looked at like the average birth rates for uh, Nigerian uh, women. And it's very normal for a Nigerian woman to have a child by by the time she's 21. and I just think, you know, it's not a conspiracy if the age of the cohort that we t- we tend to be recruiting from has a child. If that's if that's a cultural norm, then that's a cultural norm. It's like <laughs> I always say it's like going into a sixth form and being like, goodness me, why are all these 16 year olds learning to drive? It's like, well, it's because it's a cultural norm for people. So 17 year olds learn to drive. It's a cultural norm to be happening at that age. There's no conspiracy there. So I think I, I do. I, I I totally see why people are sort of saying, "Oh, look at all these dependents. What's happening?" But if you actually situate it in to a cultural context, it's a lot more banal, and there's not really a conspiracy going on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, university's approach to drugs has slightly ungenerously landed uh, in on the front pages this week. Uh, Sue, t- tell us why. 
So this is the Times front page on on Tuesday with an investigation into student use of ketamine, um, ketamine and and some other um, more more recently acquired drugs have have been associated with a number of preventable student deaths, and and in autumn 2020, as student drug use rose in the pandemic, we started to see the impact of this. The Home Office and the Department of Health and Social Care commissioned Dame Carol Black to look across the sector and across society at how to deal with this increasing drug use. And the detailed report that she produced is exceptionally useful and led to the creation of a Universities UK task force that, that has now reported on effectively a harm reduction approach to drug use in universities. Um, the uh, Priti Patel has now jumped on this and is saying that universities will have blood on their hands uh, because of the number of murders that take place with regard to drug crimes. I've not seen a lot of that at Basketball University, fortunately, but you never know. Uh, Perhaps she's right. I've not known it before, but you never know. Um, And so what the Times is doing is reporting that there is a prevalence of drug use on campus, that universities are complicit in allowing drugs to be used on campus, uh, that this is entirely contrary to, to what everybody in society wants, and that it's generally a very bad thing. And although the, the story is nominally about drugs, I think actually, and this, Sunday's done an excellent piece for Wonky on this, um, it's actually about how universities are victims of hostile coverage in the media for something that is actually quite a sensible idea. And I think, you know, in addition to looking at how we respond to young people experimenting in ways that push the boundaries of society's norms, we need to think about how universities finally come onto the front foot when it comes to looking after them and dealing with these issues. Yeah, no, it was a hit piece. Um, And I think there are two conversations to be had, Uh, actually three. Um, I'll try and be quick with them. Um, Obviously, the first is the initial article, which is just objectively awful journalism um, and the writer making really broad assumptions about patterns of student drug use based off the price of drugs. And I understand why in like a sort of cost of living crisis, he'd make uh, that assumption, but there was a lot more going on and uh, it really showed how little there was that the you know investigative journalist uh knew knows about um student drug use but i did i did enjoy the comments under the article uh and there are a few of them which were saying things like i went to university 30 years ago you know this is nothing new um the second was uh an absolute character assassination of the uh student special advisor involved um and they really really went for her and she's a current student um, she was completely discredited. Her work was discredited. And they they even went as far as sort of posting uh, a selfie of her that they had sort of taken from her social media. Uh, at a time, she had like pink hair and piercings. And it was such a sort of transparent way of signaling to sort of middle class readers like this is the wrong one. Um, but what they didn't mention um, as Sue said, is that she was the student special advisor and they only mentioned her, but they didn't mention that the other special advisors were Professor Owen Bowden-Jones, who is the consultant addiction psychiatrist and chair of the advisory council on misuse of drugs. And of course, Dame Carol Black, who authored the government condition commissioned independent review of drugs, which is being used to inform the government's thinking on drug reform. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know if someone wants to tell Pretty Patel this. Um, and they've left out, um, they've left out those special advisors, and they've just included 
the student and I think that um you know they, they sort of even talk about her student society that she runs and it's just a student-run society of it's literally just a group of students coming together and trying to sort of get better drug policy um, and they've framed it as this sort of like sinister organization and I, I think the other thing that's quite upset me and and you know is quite horrible is that um this student in the same place that they you know went and got her pictures from very publicly talks about the fact that her father passed away from an overdose during her time as a student and that's why she got into drug policy reform so not only was it misinformed journalism it I actually think that's quite nasty to do to sort of leave out these these vital pieces of information and frame her as somehow financially benefiting from um students taking drugs so yeah there's a whole conversation about how students are whether the sector means for them to be or not used as cannon fodder and easy targets um but yeah as you said there's a wider conversation to be had around uh how the sector proactively frames and presents its own work to the public um in order to be head ahead of really bad uh narratives like this mm, mm. well it's in some ways not expected i guess it's just so the, the, not unexpected rather and that you know this is a you know this is an obvious opening for the culture war for a for a new for a new culture war and i think every time the sector gets into these issues it should probably expect it but i guess andy you know what's you know i guess the important thing is uh, from the perspective of people who care about actual you know policy making the sector doesn't just completely run for cover when the, this stuff happens it's got to it's got to plow on through hasn't it oh it has absolutely and you know one, one, once again this is a a very complex issue that's boiled down to sort of you know simple often political narratives there are real strands between the issues we're talking about today aren't there i mean the the, the whole thing around uh you know, students who who die by suicide and and the idea that you know the, the sector really only can engage with this if if we deal with with other organizations and and take it outside the sector it's not just about he um you know the the, the simple narratives around this and, and the whole in, immigration debate it's 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 once again you know the, the sector getting caught up in 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 this thing you know yes of course drug drugs come and go yes of course you know people were doing drugs uh 30 years ago 50 years ago and and there's, there's a really interesting broader picture here isn't there you know we we, we can look back on on decades of of drug policy that that has has failed in in a variety of interesting and unusual ways um and you know we, we still live in a in in a society where the drug uh that, that is that is the most damaging um and causes the most harm to society is, is is alcohol and yet nobody is going to be shocked if i say i had a glass of shiraz with my with my meal last night and so you know this there's a sense in which this is this is just a depressingly familiar um but but you're absolutely right we 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 have to engage with 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 the debate with there is a sense in which we're on um the back foot a, a little bit all the time but it it's broader than he you know young young people do drugs that's arguably part of the whole thing of growing up isn't it Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, Sue, I mentioned on that point. I mean, you, you mentioned that you know the the, the mean streets of uh, Bath Spa University. Um, you're not you're not exactly seeing the kind of um, uh, the 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 pretty Patel's um, nightmare vision. But I am interested in in you know what your actual approach is uh, on campus. 
Our approach at Bath Spa is, is very much to look at reducing harm to any undergraduate or any student who chooses to take drugs, whilst at the same time having a whole series of policies that are very clear about our intention when it comes to students not engaging with illegal activity. And we have to keep that duality, but mainly I have to make sure that my students are as likely as possible to be well and healthy and informed. But beyond that, what I'm seeing is a much bigger issue that nobody is really talking about except in passing, which is that regardless of whether students take ketamine at the weekend, they are struggling to eat. And the main thing that we are doing on campus at the moment is producing subsidised meals. We are uh, producing food lockers on campus so that people can help themselves for free to pasta and tomato tins of tomato and baked beans and so on because many of my students have to work more hours than they should in order to eat and have accommodation and stay warm and that's the big issue that students are facing it's not a university's approach to drug use and it's actually not issues of, of mental health and well-being though that's a very significant thing most students are worried about how they eat and how they sleep and that's something that all of these articles and all of this toxicity in regard to what universities are doing elides. The main issue is something that isn't sexy enough to be the Times front page, but it's affecting the vast, vast majority of students in this country. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. And don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So, thanks very much to Sue, to Sunday, to Andy, and uh, our news editor, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen behind the scenes. Um, We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. In the meantime, stay wonky. (laughs) 